thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, you didn't really go anywhere, just listening. But thank you all for being here tonight. Um, tonight we are continuing in fear and melancholy. Um, Josh is going to be dealing with uh, anxiety, defining anxiety biblically. Uh, we're up. We're up to part six of fear and melancholy. Uh, Josh is gonna pray for us and get into the meat and potatoes of it. Let's just take it away whenever, Josh. All right. Thanks. Now let's pray, and we will get started. Uh, sorry, a yawn caught me as I as soon as I was about to begin. Let me try that again. Lord, thank you for giving us time together, and I ask for your help as we look at a single word within your word. And help us to see the sufficiency of what you have given, what you have revealed, to help us in every area of life. Amen. All right. So I had to change the title. As you may have noticed, if you uh, if you're here, then you probably got notified from the Bible study notification because you're here now, and you probably saw it. I'm yawning again. I woke up at two o'clock this morning, so if I yawn, that's why. I'm gonna try my best to stop. <laughs> um, focusing. So the original title was Defining Fear Biblically, Fear and Melancholy Part 6. I changed it to Against the Psychologist Round 2, Defining Anxiety Biblically, because I have to not retract completely, because we're going to get into it later, but uh, alter the way that I framed things initially a little bit. So back, way back, weeks ago, when... We started this fear and melancholy uh, whole thing. I did a, a thing on against a psychologist. I walked through uh, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual 5th Edition definitions and symptoms of uh, depressive disorders and, and things like that and demonstrated, I think, uh, sufficiently that the foundations of their methodology is rotted out unbiblical, unchristian, and so should be discarded as a way to understand the human soul, understand the problems that we deal with, and rather we should take a biblical perspective. And I'm not changing that position at all. In fact, we're going another round tonight uh, on that subject. The thing that I did say is that I wanted to use biblical terminology or at least older terminology to try to avoid the stigma that surrounds certain words uh, that are used in our common parlance within our culture. Depression and anxiety being those words. And I changed them to melancholy for depression and fear for anxiety. However, in preparing for this, 
the Bible makes a distinction between fear and what we might call anxiety. <laughs> There's actually different words for these things in the New Testament. So, uh, I haven't come up with a different word for anxiety. Often in some contemporary translations, they translate the Greek word that I'm going to give you the definition of later as anxiousness, anxious, or anxiety. But what they mean by it when they translate it isn't what the DSM-5 means by it. So that's where things get tricky, where if I use the word, they get translated that way. I don't want to just use a Greek word because I don't want to flex Greek knowledge that I um, don't have a sufficient amount of uh, to, to really use in that way. And, and that's just confusing and unhelpful for, for all of you who are listening. Um, so what I would rather do is just use the word, give the definition, and, and run with it like that. Because what would end up becoming confusing is when I go to the biblical text where they translate it, anxiety or anxiousness, and I keep using that and then changing the word to fear or change, that would become confusing. So for the sake of simplicity, if none of that made sense, don't worry about it too much. Uh, I'm going to be using anxiety as the word. We are going to talk about fear and the distinction between the two that the Bible makes because it makes a distinction. Um, it talks about anxiety and anxiousness in wholly negative terms every time it's mentioned, except for one that I could find and that I can think of right now. Um, and then uh, fear is usually contrasted between two kinds fear of the lord which is good and then fear of other things which is then uh bad um so we're gonna get into a lot of that over the next few weeks tonight what i wanted to do was hone in on that word anxiety give a definition, give some autobiographical information as well. For those of you who uh, deal with this, maybe you can relate to some things I'll say, and maybe that will um, give me a fair hearing because I'm going to turn around after I describe things and upend all the cultural narratives about it and walk through what would have happened to me if I had bought into the cultural narrative about what was happening to me and sought help from the pagans. What, 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 how would things have ended? And then how did they end instead? And hopefully at the end of all of that, there will be some hope in view for those of you who struggle with it or know people who do. Um, that, that's real and tangible and not, and, and hoping rather than coping, because as we're going to see, that's, all that the world can offer you when it comes to anxiety and fear is coping with it. There is no hope. Um, so that's the goal for tonight. So unfortunately, this is another one of the situations where it's a, hey, trust me, the, the uh, lots of Bible is coming next week <laughs> and moving forward. But tonight we're going to be mostly doing an analysis of DSM-5 criteria 
for diagnosing different anxiety disorders. If you're, that doesn't excite you at all, then I'm sorry. But we did that with depression, so I want to do it again here. I did it a little bit when we did that one, but I realized I, I didn't do – I only focused on generalized anxiety disorder, which is one of the three main kinds that um, – that they talk about and that they consider common and looking at it, it's probably the other two that if you think of yourself as having anxiety, you probably fall into more of those categories. Explain why the standards for diagnosis are arbitrary, prejudicial conjectures and rest on unbiblical uh, foundations and then go into, well, what's that little word that gets translated anxiety? What is that? What's that about? And how that's a more accurate description um, of what it is that we're dealing with because it's not rooted in unbiblical foundations about who we are and what the world is like. And then give a bit of a teaser for the hope that we will have and we will look at over the coming weeks. So there's my... Uh, typical 10-minute introduction <laughs> before I begin. Uh, let's go. So first things first, let me drop some links into Bible study chat, uh, which I will not be reading while we uh, go over things. So this is um, what I'll be looking at and what I'll be analyzing over the next hour or so as we go through uh, will be those three links. The website, peers, uh, from what I saw, it's a peer-reviewed publication of essentially the exact information that's in the DSM-5. So if you go to any kind of psychotherapy in the States, at least in the West in general, uh, so Western Europe and North America, then you're going to this is their book. This is the standards that they would be using to look at you, to diagnose you, to examine what's going on with you, and to tell you what's wrong with you. What we're going to see is that these standards are arbitrary, prejudicial conjectures that rest on unbiblical foundations. But first, actually, no, we do that first. We're doing that first. Okay. We'll blow the thing up and then we'll rebuild. We'll do it in that order. All right. So first we're going to look at generalized anxiety disorder symptoms and diagnosis, which we looked at before, but I, I want to dive into there's some particular points in the article uh, that I want us to look at. Um, okay. So the first thing is as a rule of thumb, and you might remember me mentioning this when I gave a definition for melancholy a couple of weeks ago, you can't define your terms with your terms. If I'm going to tell you what anxiety is, then I can't say anxiety is having excessive anxiety. That doesn't actually say anything about what it is. It's like saying a man is a man because he's a man. There's no content to that. I haven't given you a description or a definition. I've just said that the thing is the thing that it is because it's the thing that it is. So if I say 
anxiety is def- is defined by having anxiety. It doesn't help you understand what it is. And then if I say everything else is a symptom of having anxiety, and anxiety is having anxiety, then I still haven't told you what it is. I've merely described some of the things that happen when you have it. But I still haven't given you a definition. And this is just how faulty it is at the root of it. This is, this is the book that they're using to give people diagnoses that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Telling them, this is who you are. This is the problem you have. It is treatable, but not curable. You're going to live with this for the rest of your life. And if you ask us too many questions about what it is exactly, we couldn't really tell you without just defining our terms with our terms. So, um, if you are following along on the the webpage there, um, you'll see that uh, the symptoms one of them is excessive anxiety and worry it's like that doesn't tell me what it is it only tells me the symptoms um so if you look down the criteria for diagnosing generalized anxiety disorder is the presses the presence of excessive anxiety and worry it's like (laughs) well yeah what else would it be (laughs) um but then it says it's accompanied by at least three of the following physical or cognitive symptoms. Why three? Why at least three? And then it says, in children, only one of these symptoms is necessary for a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. So if your kid is worried and restless, boom, he's got it. Done. Diagnosis complete. There it is. Or any other combination of those, if he's got two with one of these extras and the excessive anxiety and worry, that's it. Clear and done. Kid's got it. He's got a mental health problem is the way they would then describe it. Or if you have three of them. And the thing is, those things could be coming from other places. Remember we talked about in the first one, the correlation causation fallacy. Just because things happen at the same time doesn't mean they're caused by each other. An example I use is something akin to this one, where if, if every single time I heard a siren outside, I got hungry, or I, I was hungry every single time I heard a siren, and that keeps happening day after day after day, and I then begin to think, oh, if I hear a siren, I become hungry. Or rather, I could begin to think, when I'm hungry, sirens go off. My hunger causes sirens to go off. When in reality, the sirens are being tested because we, we live near a place where they test their sirens because they're, we live near um, uh, a police station. So they test their sirens before they go on shift. Sometimes. And us often in the morning. Guess what people often are in the morning? Hungry. Wow, those things are not causally related. 
but they are going to consistently happen at the same time. But if I make that connection, that just because they are correlated, that they are now causally connected, that is an invalid leap of logic. And that's exactly what could be happening here. You could have impaired concentration, tire easily, be irritable, and worry about stuff. And those things might not be causally connected at all. And so the other three things are not symptoms of your worry. They could be symptoms of something else. But guess what? You went to a psychotherapist and now, and they're using this as their criteria, and they just diagnosed you with something. Now, do they and should they have ways which to, to, to try to analyze and cancel out some of those things? Yes. Um, I, I, I'm, I would hope that they do. But it's still an arbitrary connection, an arbitrary number. Why three? Why not four? Why not two? What if you have it, but you only exhibit two of the symptoms? So you don't get a diagnosis. I, it's, it is so mind-boggling. But this is the way that a soft science is done. Because soft sciences, as we described, the distinction between the two, soft science and a hard science, the hard sciences would be something like uh, biology, astrophysics, something like that, where you have, uh, for the most part, besides when they go into theorizing, but then they admit they're theorizing most of the time, um, you have repeatable, testable uh, methodologies that allow them to replicate what's been done. Now, all of those are resting on presuppositions about the world as well. And in fact, they have to rest on Christian ones in order to actually get off the ground and be sound. But they are using ones that require and rest upon Christian assumptions. Correlation causation fallacies can only uh, not be fallacious on unbiblical and non-Christian assumptions about the world. So they use that again. Uh, we see that over and over again in these uh, excerpts from the DSM-5. They find their terms of their terms. They use arbitrary prejudicial uh, conjectures for their definitions, for their diagnosis standards. Um, and we get some some interesting things uh, down at the bottom, which are not in the DSM-5 anymore, so we're kind of away from that. But this is still written by someone who's in the field, a professional within the field, and, and so you kind of get an insight into how they these people are thinking about you and about the world, which, again, that matters a ton. Um, so the article says down, it's way down below under when to seek help. Uh, only around 20% of people who have symptoms of anxiety seek treatment. It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people are tired and irritable and <laughs> those things that they described. Um, and they don't think of that as being a mental disorder. Uh, so it's just culture still catching up uh, to these people. It says, in 2020, a national coalition of women's health professionals recommended that all women aged 13 and older should be screened for anxiety. The lifetime prevalence of anxiety disorders is approximately two times higher in women than in men 
So preventative screenings may be helpful in ensuring that women and girls receive appropriate interventions to improve health and well-being. Here's the problem with that. When you're given a preventative screening for a mental health issue, how do they determine these things? How do they diagnose them? Well, they, they, they interview you. They talk to you. So they can't open up your skull and see something like I'm irritable. Or, you know, I, I, I get, I'm, I'm a little more tired than I, you have to describe that to them. I'm a little more tired than I usually am. Or I'm really restless. Or I, I feel like I, I can't think right now. Um, those are things that you have to describe to them as happening to you. Or I'm worried about stuff. The foundational thing that has to be present is something that you have to self-report. And if you ask certain questions in a certain way, you can prompt and promote certain responses from people. So uh, this is a common thing with personality tests, which we've covered before. Why Those are goofy at minimal, uh, at at the least, they're goofy. At worst, they've got some serious, creepy stuff going on with like automatic writing and all kinds of weird pagan stuff in the background. Um, but with the, the the least dangerous, goofy ones, they'll ask you a question that, on an initial self reflection, you're like, "Yeah, I am kind of like that, aren't I?" Or I have been feeling that. Like you don't think about those things. Until someone asks you. And then you go, oh, maybe I have been kind of like that lately. It, it, it's all based upon you having an accurate conception of yourself, which the Bible tells us that we don't <laughs> have a wholly accurate conception of ourselves because our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And you're part of that who? Who can know it? It doesn't mean that we have a wholly inaccurate self conception. But sin causes problems with our knowledge. It's called the noetic effects of sin. Our knowledge of the world is inhibited and crippled in different ways by our sin. And that includes knowledge of ourselves. So when you do something like a preventative screening, you end up heightening the number of people who end up with a diagnosis. Why? Because Again, the diagnosis standards are so all over the place, and um, it's it's a it's the wild west out there, really, with with this kind of thing. Um, but this is just generalized anxiety disorder. Let's hop over. Well, actually, first, there's one more comment at the bottom that I wanted to to look at. This is the word from very well. This is the the website. Um, remember, generalized anxiety disorder is a treatable condition. There is no need for you or your child to worry in silence. Treatment, particularly psychotherapy, self-help approaches, or other therapies will teach you a variety of ways to cope with your anxiety. There are also medications that can help. But there's no hope. Notice, treatable condition. So first, it's condition. You're stuck with it. It is a part of who you are. 
It is not an action or a state of mind or something that's not who you are at bottom. This is part of who you are at bottom. This is you. You are, you, you are disordered, which in one sense is true, biblically speaking. But they're defining you by this thing. Uh, so that's the first thing to note. The second thing is that uh, you have all, the, the treatments are all over the place. If if this is as uh, those who wrote the DSM five and revised it most recently would have us believe is is centered around a evolutionary biological approach to the world that who we are are animals evolving over time, et cetera, et cetera. We are mere matter in motion. Uh, there is no immaterial uh, part of who we are. If that's the case, then this is all over the place and inconsistent with that because you have psychotherapy, self-help, other therapies. That's what that even means. Medication. You have all these different things not to cure you, but to help you cope. That's it. That's all they can offer you is cope. Just, it, we, will, we, will, we, will, we will sedate you. It's really what, what it is. We're going to sedate you so that you're still, you're going to always worry. You can't not worry. It's who you are. You can't not be afraid. It's who you are. You can't not be anxious. It's who you are. But we can help you cope. And that is where we part way significantly with the folks who take this perspective. We Christians who believe the Bible. Why? The New Testament has multiple places. We're going to look at them over the next few weeks where there is a command, a command, not a suggestion, not a cope, not a option, a command. What is it? What does it say? Do not be anxious. Jesus says it in the Gospels. Paul says it. Peter says it in a roundabout way. There's a unified voice in the New Testament. God's voice inspiring all the writings saying, do not be anxious about your life. Which means that the God who commands do not be anxious has grace waiting in the wings to help you not be anxious. And we'll look at all of that in the future. But back to the next one, uh, flipping over to social anxiety disorder. So now there may, we, we noted this way back uh, in the first against the psychologists and their misnomers. Uh, that there were a bunch of different anxiety disorders. I've picked the three 
main ones that I think that most people listening might see their experience with it in the most, or at least have comparable. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing. What that, what that article just described, whether it's resting on pagan foundations or not, what it just described as a symptom is something that I deal with. So I picked those um, so that we could walk through them a little bit. Now, they make a distinction here between, and this, this one has a great acronym, SAD, which is just lovely, um, as compared to GAD, which is the generalized anxiety disorder we were just looking at. So their main distinction between them is that if you're SAD and not GAD, then you worry about people mostly and not major life issues you worry about perform worry public speaking is crippling the thought of it uh you avoid being around people as much as you can and they note that the average age of onset is 13 for sad and 31 for gad which really means it's the same thing it just cha- it just changes its shape <laughs> and the focus because everything else is the same so what really is happening is and they admit that there's overlap between these two um but the the focus of it changes over time um that you, you hit puberty and suddenly you're keenly aware of everyone being able to see you <laughs> And you begin to worry about what they think about that. Uh, And then you get to my age and you have midlife crisis. Because you're not 13 anymore. And you don't care about what people think about you as much as you do about paying bills. Because now you have to think about that. When you're 13, you don't have to think about that. So, of course, a 13-year-old is less likely to have GAD if they're defining it as worrying about major life issues. because. They don't typically have to worry about those things. Their parents are worrying about those things and they're worrying about, you know, people at school or whatever. So that's their distinction. Um, now, they have what they call co-occurring conditions. So that depression is commonly co-occurring with GAD and SAD and all of this um, other stuff, which we mentioned this before that these things do come together often. So not all of the observations they make are wrong. It's when they begin to make claims about the cause and the cure is where they go crazy. But in terms of observing human behavior, they can accurately describe the way someone is behaving in many cases, or they can accurately collect uh, self-reports of people experiencing certain kinds of things. It's when they begin to make claims about human nature, about the soul, about the uh, root of its problems, and the way to fix it. That's where things go horribly wrong just to make it very clear that that is what I'm saying. Um, So the the social anxiety one is 
the one that I, I think a lot of people um, at some level, are like, yeah, they, they, they end up getting afraid of uh, they, they, they blow up social relationships in their mind. They think to themselves about that. They begin to worry about if I talk to this person, what will they say next? And what will they do next? Um, I've talked to some of you about this kind of thing where you're, 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 you're playing 5d chess with everyone you ever talk to when they just want to ask you how your day is going. And I get this deal with it, dealt with it. Um, so they have that. And then they have the panic disorders, which is basically where you have panic attacks. You ever had a panic attack? It's awful. It's terrible. It feels terrible. It's a genuine, just physical response to something. But it's a physical response to things that you're thinking. And they admit this. Um, uh, in their definition it finds a panic attack as a sudden onset of intense fear and then what follows are these physical symptoms so you take all three of those and mash them together and you have what most people are trying to describe when they say, I have anxiety. Now, some people are just self-diagnosing wizards and they'll say, I have anxiety when they just fret about things, but they haven't had a panic attack in their life. They don't get the fact that they're even talking to you is a not close to a miracle where someone who is really crippled by uh, anxiousness and worry and fear over what other people think about them might just, if, if you can get them to talk, it's a miracle. Um, so, yeah. But the, the same thing happens with the social anxiety and the panic disorder is you have an arbitrary number of symptoms that someone has to exhibit before they have it. And um, the arbitrary nature of the diagnosis, because many of these things could be caused by something else. Even with the panic attack ones, you have something that resembles a panic attack that is actually caused by just something that's wrong with you physically. Because there's so many different symptoms and they only require at least four of them to be present. Only four. And they don't have to be any combination of the physical and the psychological. Because in some of the symptoms, they have things that you're thinking, fear of dying, fear of losing control or going crazy. And then other ones are just physical. I'm trembling and shaking. I have nausea. So... It, it doesn't make any kind of distinction between those or try. It just says it has to be at least four. Why four? What if I have three of them? 
did I not have a real panic attack? Are you gatekeeping panic attacks now? Yes, they are. <laughs> so, if I had gone a few years ago to a psychotherapist, they would have diagnosed me with all three of those. Uh, I had multiple panic attacks. Went to the hospital for, I think, at least two of them. Because I, I, didn't, know was, I didn't know what a panic attack was. I never had one in my whole life. Um, I had become crippled by fear of talking to other people. Uh, we, we would pull in the parking lot of church, and I, I couldn't even get out of the car. I, I, was, I was so afraid to even make eye contact with other people. And the underlying reason was twofold. The first was that I was uh, living in unrepentant sin of all kinds of sins um, and wasn't dealing with it properly. We talked about dealing with guilt I think last week. I uh, wasn't dealing with it. I was in as a result, uh, much sorrow and despair and terrified that people would find out about my sin and what they would think about me when they did. And all those things come together along with just a worst case scenario building in my head, which I still do from time to time. Uh, my wife is chuckling because she knows time to time is an understatement. Um, but it's not in a way that stops me from doing something. It doesn't control my actions. I, I do it instinctually, but it doesn't cripple me the way that it used to. Um, when I first got married, for example, I was afraid many times to go to sleep because I had this insane idea in my mind that my wife was going to murder me in my sleep. That she would have uh, instant regrets <laughs> over getting married to me. And, and I had drummed up in my mind that, that she had those and that the way that she saw out of it was, well, he died in his sleep, you know? Just, that's what happened. And uh, now, now she's free. Uh, insane idea. She would never do that. <laughs> but I had convinced myself that it was possible. And it began to control the way I interacted with her, the way that I lived, the way that I, I couldn't sleep. I, it was bad. So I understand what this is like. I, as a Christian, I was a Christian at this point. Before that, it was even worse. I would not talk to people. Just as a rule, I, I did not talk to almost anyone for a good chunk of my, around the age of 12 to about 15. If you were an adult, I would not speak with you. You, you could talk to me. I was a really rude kid. I would not respond, would not speak. And it, I, was, I, was, I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. But what was my problem? Was it a unfixable mental disorder that was rooted in my biology 
was a immovable permanent result of my upbringing? Or was my sin the problem and the effects of the fall my problem? Well, I'm speaking to at least 12 of you right now and knowing that more may listen later with not a quiver in my voice or a tremble in my hand. Not afraid at all. Went out in public today. No worries. Went to church on Sunday. Wasn't afraid. Went to bed last night and didn't think my wife was going to kill me in my sleep. Now, if the, if the story about the world and the way it is and the way we are, that the psychologist tells, that the DSM-5 tells, is true. I should not be possible. I should, I, I, I either have found a, such a way to cope, and I'm still really worried all the time. I mean, I even admitted it earlier. I still do the worst case scenario thing. So I'm really, I, I just coped so hard. I'm coping so hard every day that I just don't notice my symptoms anymore. But I still have them. They're disorders. They're, they're mental disorders. They're mental health problems. I can't, you can't cure these things. They can't go away. You just have to cope and treat. But I also don't exist in their worldview because I never went to them. Not once. Because when it happened, I was a Christian already. And I had read enough of the Bible, read enough books about the Bible to know what my problem was. I knew what it was. I knew exactly what it was, but I refused to admit it. I refused to bring it to Christ. I refused to confess my sin to the people I sinned against. I refused to deal with it. And instead wallowed in self-pity and fear and sorrow rather than do what was right and what, what God commanded. Do not be anxious about your life. Rather than do that, chose my own suffering over it. And the beautiful thing about universal claims is that they can be disproven with one exception. And so I could give the accounts of others who have come out of depression, come out of anxiety, but mine's sufficient to counter the claims of cope is your only hope. No, Christ is our only hope in life and death. And he is the one who rescued me out of my sin and my sorrow, my despair and my fear. And he can do the same for you. He can. And what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is exactly how he does that. But the first thing we'll do as we close is to look at that word anxiety from those texts of scripture. The word that we'll be looking at 
here's uh, I, I took some different lexicons and definitions and then using the context in which the word is used, crafted a definition of anxiety. I believe is biblical and we're going to look at it over the next few weeks and, and we'll also look at full-blown fear, fear of man, fear of uh, the future, fear of, and, and those things are interlocked and related, uh, but can be distinct and different. So we'll, we'll look at that as we go. But here's uh, the definition that I've come up with. Anxiety is a pattern of thought characterized by concern or care that consumes your attention consumes your mind, consumes you. And sometimes, as a result, causes failures to function, causes you to become undone. And sometimes that's a panic attack. Sometimes that's, I can't move. I can't get out of my car. I can't go inside that door can't face these people sometimes it's just all in your head but it leads to things like i can't sleep why because i'm consumed with anxiousness about tomorrow or consumed with anxiousness about this conversation i had a week ago and i keep replaying it in my mind over and over and over and over again i'm consumed by these patterns of thought and it undoes me Un- undoes me. I don't even grammar. I am undone by it. And so you may have noticed there's a bit of an overlap with our definition of melancholy. That sometimes this this thing that you experience is this pattern of thinking, this response to circumstances leads to failures to function. Those are usually the things that the DSM-5 would associate as symptoms. But I, but I qualify it with a sometime. And I don't insert a random number in there to say, and if it's not this many, you don't have it. What a way to just refuse to help someone who needs help. If you have one or none of those things, but you are anxious about your life, then God has words of hope for you and commands for you and good news for you. And that's what we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. So, uh, let me pray, and then we will go to questions, announcements, and things like that. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the hope that you give us, that you can quell all of our fears and give us true peace. Amen. It's question time. You can either raise your hands and speak with your voice or um, 
ask it in chat. I wasn't keeping up with chat, so I don't know if there's any questions in there for you. I'm going to look. I'm looking as okay. I, I do. Ford, Ford has a question, so I'm going to go ahead and let Ford come up. Hello. I'm going to mute myself. Hello. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I didn't hear the. I wasn't joining throughout the whole thing, but I was just. Was there anything like specific? I mean, you say that like it was a number of things that helped your anxiety and was but was there anything in specific that you were moved by or that that helped out with it the most or one over the other was there any specific thing that happened to to help out with your anxiety yeah yeah uh that's a good question um one thing was my wife patiently and graciously reminding me of the truth when I was refusing to believe it. Sometimes you need to hear it from someone else because you get stuck in your own head. Yeah. Hearing it externally is like, oh, that's right. I do believe that's true. I don't believe the crazy things I've been telling myself for the last 24 hours. All of that's a bunch of lies. Why, why am I even, <laughs> why am I contemplating all that? Um, the second thing was the book of judges. <laughs> was what I was reading at the time when I started to finally come out of that really the, 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 the darker part of it where it was this prolonged period of panic attacks and things like that. Yeah. Um, the book of Judges. And, and you're like, uh, how does that work? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was the... In some ways, I just attribute it to God graciously working through his word. No matter what I was reading, I think he would have done it. Um, but the thing in Judges that that I think helped me get out of it was that God was consistently rescuing people out of dire circumstances because of his promise to them to be faithful to them. And that if I'm a Christian, then I have better promises than even they. Yeah. We have a new covenant built on better promises and that he hasn't, the, the things that I'm afraid of, he's conquered the things that I'm uh, dealing like, uh, and then also the, the leveling of the playing field when it comes in judges, the, Judges is a book with no heroes. Yeah. E even the judges are really not. And it's this really uh, dark period of, of these cycles of sin and rescue and sin and rescue. Um, and, and, and really the, the pinnacle hero of the book is Samson. And he ends up being a typological of Christ in, in many ways. But um, but but what it reminded me of because one of the things i was dealing with is i was so afraid of other people and yeah. it was a reminder of the truth that i knew but needed to believe on a regular basis whenever i stood in front of another person is that they are the same as me a sinner redeemed by grace if it's a christian if not then a sinner <laughs> uh, under the wrath of god um but a a, a, a person made in god's image and dust we, we, we are made from dust. Um, we, we are creatures. 
the person in front of me cannot do anything to me that God has not ordained. Whatever they think about me, whatever they, if, if my wife kills me in my sleep, <laughs> all those fears um, were completely overblown and irrational. And part of what helped me see that more clearly was the just leveling of things. Um, and scripture gives us just a clear picture of that. Um, where the guy that makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews, Samson, is kind of crummy up until the end of it, <laughs> end of his life. Um, makes a lot of bad moves. And you just see that. Um, it gives you a bit of hope. The other thing, uh, there, there were two more things that were significant. One was uh, we went and talked to people. We went and started so like, meeting. Like the influence of other people had a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. So so we started meeting with an older couple, older Christian couple, and it was sitting here and just having this guy who's over twice my three, almost three times my age, walking me through texts of scripture, just caring about me and uh, having conversations with me and. Uh, listening to me talk about my sin, giving me hope, the hope of the gospel in return, um, discipling me, um, and and that helped a, a lot. Um, we didn't start meeting with him until I was kind of on the other. I, I was be, pretty much on the other side of it, but it helped solidify the ground under my feet. And the last thing uh, was a, a major shift in my eschatology. <laughs> eschatology. Uh, view view of 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 end time stuff. Oh yeah, I got you. Um, I got post milled, and uh, <laughs> based in post milled is that what the kids say? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that 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 helped too. But that was that was already kind of under construction, but I kind of solidified it a lot of it. Um, but that was a pretty minor. Thing in the grand scheme those other things were more significant yeah but, um yeah like you seem very passionate about like what you speak of how long would you say like you've been passionate like that or as passionate uh, as you are yeah so i became a christian in 2011 and how old there's been Sorry. uh i was 19 got you um God snatched me up out of depths of darkness and despair and judgment and uh, saved me through his word. Literally, I just I was reading the Bible alone <laughs> in my apartment. Um, and he saved me. And um, that there was a lot of it then. There's been ups and downs. But yeah, I've I've been like this for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was just I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. All right, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thanks for thanks for answering. You're good. Yeah, you have a good one. Thank you. Good questions and welcome. I don't think I've met you yet, so. No, oh, yeah, yeah. Have a good one. All right. Let me.
Hi. Oh, hello. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask, like, if you have a brother or sister in Christ um, who has anxiety, like, um, can you give me, like, a few things that I should, like, do to be able to help them or encourage them? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of biblical texts that we're going to look at in detail over the next few weeks, but I can give you some of them right now. Um, especially Matthew 6. Uh, let me get the wider context for you. Um, so Matthew 6, 25 to 34 is the uh, Jesus, one of the places where he tells us, don't be anxious. But he gives us a reason why. And that's the comfort. Um, and we're going to go into more detail. But if you read it, it's it's fairly self-explanatory. Um, so Matthew 6, 25 to 34, be a good thing to, hey, uh, even if you don't just say, hey, read this. But if, if they come to you and say, man, I'm, I'm really anxious today about this, that, and the other. And you say, hey, remember this truth. And you can summarize or paraphrase or quote from it uh, to them. I think that's a helpful place. The other one is First Peter. Uh, I have it in my notes. First Peter 5, 6 to 7. Um, and we're, we're going to spend a lot of time here um, soon. But it's a great, uh, great text. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you because he cares for you and sometimes just hearing that like last line can really um do some work uh being reminded god does in fact care for you can sometimes break the spell so to speak uh that fear can have um the other thing is pray for them and maybe pray with them uh, if if they're um, open to you doing that, uh, praying out loud with someone can really be helpful. Like praying for them out loud with them can sometimes be really, really encouraging. Um, and listen to them. If they come and talk to you, um, listen well. You don't have to, after they go, I'm anxious, just start quoting Bible verses at them. Yeah. Let, let, let them talk about it. And then when there's a good time to say, hey, you know, here's here's what God's word says. And, and this encourages me when I um, am anxious and I hope it encourages you. You can give them yeah. that. But yeah, the word and prayer, those are our weapons um, to not just fight our own battles, but to fight on behalf of others so and yeah yeah that's the short uh, answer uh, the the long answer will be the next three weeks <laughs> um okay. a bible study but oh uh thank you I, I wasn't familiar with the first peter um passage but yeah thank you yeah good good yeah um the matthew 6 one uh, um 
which a lot of people are familiar with, was one of the first passages I ever memorized um, out of scripture when I first became a Christian. Because um, my one of my professors taught us about it. But the first Peter one was a newer one to me as well. So it's a good, um, not recent, not recently new, but newer last few years. Okay. Uh, let me see. I noticed a question for you. Figured I'd save you the time. So, yeah, I, I was going to scroll. I'm scrolling, but... Yeah, uh, if you just go to the most recent here, Minimi is looking for a definition for the anxiety in the heart. Uh, and there's a little note attached to it that seems to quote a previous uh, something or another. So I would, I would investigate that. Uh, where is it? Uh, it's the most recent uh, post here. Could be mistaken. Something could have happened. I know. Um. Well, I would define it the same as I just defined anxiety. There is anxiety in the heart. <laughs> Um, I don't remember the context in which you asked me if I said that phrase. I would have, I'd imagine I would have just meant just anxiousness. The kind in which I just defined uh, a second ago. Yeah, I may have told you to wait because I hadn't nailed down a definition yet, which I did today. So there you go. Yeah. So I, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. If I said that I would answer in the coming weeks, then I know what I was thinking, what past me was thinking, which is I'm going to give a definition of anxiety in the future. And there you go. Um, all right. I'm looking for other questions, but... Uh, let me see. Graceful always posting that same meme of me whenever I ever mention that I am ever shy ever. <laughs> um, Josh is married. Yes, he is. 
this makes no sense. Prevention screening, the DSM doesn't offer preventative anything. Yeah, so that part of the article um, was not out of the DSM-5. That was a uh, collection of women's health professionals gave a strong suggestion, basically, that everyone do preventative screenings of things, which that it doesn't make any sense. How can you do a preventative screening of something if it's preventative? You wouldn't have signs of it and you have sufficient signs for a diagnosis before you have it because they have arbitrary numbers involved. Uh, anyway, uh, how do you, are you halfway, halfway have anxiety disorders? It's, it's goofy. Um, Uh, that's not a real question, so I'm going to skip it for now. Uh, should Christians try and learn Greek? Wait, is he still here before I answer? Okay, he is. Uh, should Christians try and learn Greek? I feel like there's always a different translation for everything. It's like you read one verse and then go online and see that it meant something different when a Greek speaker explains it. Um, so having learned enough Greek to do some translation work, it is not essential. Should you try and learn it? Yeah. Uh, is it essential? No. And would you still come to differing conclusions if you knew it? Yes. Which is where things get tricky. So among the reason why translations can differ is not only in translation methodology, but also translators may choose to translate something differently. Because they think that these English words capture the meaning of these Greek words better than these other ones do. So even if you went to learn Greek, <laughs> um, you would still be doing comparative translation work. You're just now doing it in Greek instead of in English. So <laughs> um, it's... The, the real solution is to understand how to, that, that words derive their meaning within the context of other words, in addition to having a range, that they have a semantic domain of meaning, a possible meaning. And then you narrow that possible meaning based on the words around it and the context around it, and being able to follow the flow of uh, a sustained series of sentences and thought process is more important for interpretation than Greek. I said it, there it is. Being able to understand context, being able to walk through and piece together what the text is saying is going to be more important for you as a Christian than being able to translate something out of Greek into English. Learning Greek is great. If you can, do it. It's fun. You feel good about it. You get to read your Bible in original language. It's a great, wonderful thing. But if you don't, you will be okay. When you actually do get to translating, you end up finding that, hey, 
I'm basically matching most of the world word for word translations. It, it's I, I basically saying there 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 are some instances where understanding the Greek is helpful. There's some instances where it's even clarifying where some of the English translations do obscure some of the meaning. But it's rarer than you might think because there's a lot of people who abuse Greek to make the Bible seem more obtuse than it is in translation. Um, that's the thing that happens. So just do not fear the scholar is my other lesson from that question. <laughs> um, fear not the scholar. Knowing Greek does not mean that you are an infallible interpreter of the Bible. It doesn't. And being able to say things in Greek or cite Greek does not. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, I didn't know when to ask my question. I didn't know if you were done reading through or uh, not. Yep, yep. I sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day. I got you. Uh, ask away. Okay. So, um in their DSM file, I or maybe not file, but um I've sorry if my accent sorry. is unclear. <laughs> oh, DSM 5? Yeah, the 5th edition of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual is the oh, okay. name of it. Yeah. So, in it do you talked at the start about how they Def define their terms with their terms is there like when they use the word do they have like before any of the other um symptoms are stated do they have a like anxiety and then a give a definition no <laughs> they don't <laughs> no it go if you go back and listen to the one we did where i walked through the depression articles they do the same exact thing it's it's super goofy okay. <laughs> yeah. so like even so the articles that you shared are those like is that the official dsm there are quotations like, from it oh, okay in those articles but you can you can find the dsm 5 is public you can find it like the the one i did before the reason i chose those articles is because they had commentary around it that i thought was helpful to see how they are interpreting the dsm 5 how they're using it in practice i thought that those comments around it were helpful to kind of bring that to light okay but right, yeah you, you can find it just look it up dsm5 then you can find the whole thing did. online i just found it there you go my my all right thank you yeah all right do we have any other questions. I think I saw a question somewhere. Oh, oh, I, I did miss one. Um, 
did your wife's understanding, not theologically, but experientially of some of these struggles change after we got married? Uh, you had to ask her. And you're her mother, so call her after we're done and you can ask her. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I actually don't know. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I haven't asked her either, so I, I don't know, but it's an interesting question. But uh, yeah, you can ask her about it. All right. So, I think we're, that I think it? I, that's it. That, that's oh, the awkward right. silence. That yeah. means we're done. There's no one typing, and now a bunch of people are going to start typing to troll me. Um, <laughs> but I think, yep, there's immediate, the typing. Immediate. Okay. Well, well, with that, uh, we're officially. No, hold on, hold on. I have to do it boneless, boneless. You muting you. Not going to mute you. I have to do this part first. Learn the sequence of events. Okay. We're officially done.